All right, good morning and welcome to the 10 a.m. service. It's a joy and delight to be with all of you as we praise the Lord and worship Him for His faithfulness in our lives. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Help us to encounter you through your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last two weeks, Pastor Shen has preached on how Jesus instructed his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the starting of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and 2. Uh, the disciples were to be empowered to be witnesses of Christ from, starting from Jerusalem and all the way up to the ends of the earth. As we saw last week, the day of Pentecost properly marks the beginning of the church as the promised Holy Spirit came powerfully on the gathered disciples. The coming of the Holy Spirit enables the church to live as the renewed people of God. God's redemptive promises and purposes are going to be realized through the church as disciples bring the message of the gospel of Jesus to the world around them. So the life of a spirit-filled church demonstrates and proclaims the kingship of Jesus to the world around them. Without the Holy Spirit, the church would be totally incapable of carrying out its mission to the world. Without the Holy Spirit, the church could be very busy with programs and activities, but lack the essential spark to make it effective and transformative. I think there's a, um, quite a number of uh, football fans in this church community. Um, I was seeing a brother with a Louis Paul shirt uh, earlier also. So I, I think we know football, right? And football is a team sport. In a team sport, you need to pass the ball and you need to pass accurately if you want to play well. If you can't pass, you don't want to pass, or you can't pass, you can't play the, the game. But in order to win, you need to effectively pass to get your team into a scoring position. And of course, you need to convert the score. But if you don't score in football, you either draw or lose. There is no path to a win, right? There's no other outcomes possible. It's either a draw or a loss if you don't score. I'll tell you a story. I was studying in a student hostel in my freshman year in university. At that time, my seniors who were in their final year, they were playing some inter-hostel football, actually, uh, they were playing football style in a, a basketball court. Uh, at that time, I was quite amazed uh, with the footballing skills of my hostel seniors. They, you know, they had great, excellent ball control. They had samba dribbling. They had ball juggling. Just superb, fluid football. And uh, I think it was, you know, probably one of the breaks. I commended one of my seniors who played in the match about their skills. But he told me, no use, cannot score. And so it was, the opposing team had such a tightly organized defense that for, for all their excellent subline skills, my seniors could not penetrate to the defense. They were just passing beautiful football with beautiful skill on the periphery without getting into a scoring position. They lacked the actual ability 
to move into scoring positions to effectively transform the game in their favor. And in the end, I believe my seniors actually drew or lost the game. If the church is not empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit, it could have impressive worship services, exceptional programs and activities, but it will not be able to transform lives and make effective disciples. It will not live with the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ necessary to penetrate into spiritual darkness and transform broken lives with the healing, saving grace of the Lord. The big idea for today then is that the Holy Spirit enables us to live with authority and power under Christ. As Pastor Shen said last week, without the Holy Spirit, the church will be no better than a social club. But Jesus says this of his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Is the church today doing the greater works for the Lord? Are we today doing the works that Jesus had been doing? And are we doing this in even greater measure? Because that's the standard that Jesus set for us. In the books of Acts, we have a glimpse of how the early church, in the power of the Holy Spirit, lived with power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to turn their world upside down for the gospel. In Acts chapter 3 to 4, we see an example of how this authority and power is lived out by the apostles Peter and John as they healed a lame man as a sign that God's kingdom is a present reality in their world. And there are three aspects we can learn about living with authority and power from today's passage. First, to perform God's work. And second, to proclaim God's word. And third, to persevere in God's way. First, we perform God's work with authority and power. That is, doing God's work with God's power. Peter and John encountered a man who was lame from birth. You don't need to be a doctor to know that the man's leg muscles would have been shriveled and wasted within inactivity from birth. Every day, this man was helped to the temple gate to sit and beg for money from those going into the temple courts. His life purpose each day is to obtain charity so that he can meet his daily sustenance. In a fallen world, such conditions are widespread. It robs individuals and families of the abundant life that God desires for his creation. Money can help elevate such conditions, but it cannot bring about the life God intended to this lame man. Charity was and is important, but it alone can never restore the man's potential and dignity for life that God intended. Pious religious people going to the temple could have been generous with their charity to this man. 
But piety and generosity by themselves, while praiseworthy and necessary, cannot reverse the actual condition of this man and restore abundant life that is lacking. What was required is the power of the sovereign creator God to impart life and restoration to the broken body. What was needed is for the power of a saviour to reverse the effects of a fallen, broken world for this man. But someone needed to act with the authority and power of the sovereign creator God and saviour to perform God's redemptive healing work for this man. So here's how the book of Acts describes what happened. Peter looked straight at him as did John, at the lame man. Then Peter said, said look, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Silver and gold can do a lot of things, but they cannot buy salvation, nor can they bring life to what is dead. Peter and John were not wealthy or affluent men, but they had something priceless. They had life with Christ. And with authority and power, Peter extends what he had to the laymen. Peter had the authority to call on an immense power to bring about healing. When the crowd saw the miracle and that had just happened, they were astonished and naturally looked to Peter and John as if they were superhumans. But Peter said to them in verse 12, why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we made this man walk? In verse 16, Peter further explains, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Peter and John lived with authority and power. But Peter is quick to clarify that this authority and power were not their own. But it is in Jesus' name and the faith, the believing trust in God, that the man was healed. In other words, the believer's life of authority and power comes by faith in the name of Jesus. But what does praying or ministering in Jesus' name mean to us? Is it some form of a, a Christian magic formula? Some form of sorcery? No, the faith in the name of Jesus is the believing trust in a person. It is a living relationship with God's one and only Son. We cannot use the name of Jesus like a lucky charm or some magic formula to get what we want. We cannot invoke the power of Jesus' name without a faithful, obedient relationship with Jesus. Uh, some Jewish exorcists called the sons of Sceva, they actually tried to do that, right? They were not believers. They tried to use the name of Jesus in their exorcism 
uh, in Acts chapter 19, and it didn't end too well for them, right? to put it mildly. To live by faith in the name of Jesus, to pray and minister in the name of Jesus, is to live completely surrendered and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul puts it this way in uh, Galatians chapter 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The greatest source of strength and power in a Christian's life is the believer that the believer has been crucified with Christ. The old life has been abandoned. The new life that Christ brings is actually lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, uh, Peter, sorry, also described that the healing, the people witnessed that day came by faith in the name of Jesus. Faith means that we cannot do anything ourselves. Faith means that we are relying on God's power. Faith, me faith means that whatever we do, from simple tasks like helping a neighbor with groceries to praying in faith with power for someone who is sick, whatever that is done in faith has a God-sized potential to change and transform lives in a way that only God can do. Faith means a mustard seed can move mountains. The layman needed a mountain of a miracle to be able to stand again, never mind to, to walk and jump in praise of God. Peter and John had the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that moved the mountain for that lame man. It's also possible that the faith of that lame man played a part. At first, he was only expecting money from the two apostles, but when Peter commanded him to walk in the name of Jesus and then help him up, the lame man did not resist or reject. He took Peter's hand and tried to stand. Remember, he was lame from birth. Perhaps he was too bewildered to do anything else. Still, it is possible that the man just had a flicker of faith, small as a mustard seed, that responded to the name of Jesus and received the new life that Jesus brings. I'd like to suggest to you that the church today should be living with authority and power in the name of the Lord Jesus not simply as a religious observance, but actually live our lives with mountain-moving, saving, healing faith in Jesus. As long as we remember that the work of God belongs to God, we live to serve Him and work in Jesus' name. Whether in small ways or ordinary ways or miraculous ways, we serve the Lord we don't demand any signs or wonders. We humbly submit to God. We faithfully live in obedience to how God leads us, and we trust in the Lord. We leave the results to the Lord's sovereignty, and God will work. Very often, our starting point is simply to be spiritually alert 
to how God is working around us, to whom the Lord is leading us to. Just as Peter and John were led to focus on this one man when there were crowds of people around. It could be someone that the Lord brings to mind, a colleague, a friend in difficulty. It could be someone you stop to help in a mall or by the roadside. And often, the power of God moves when the Holy Spirit leads you to ask, may I pray for you? Or how can I pray for you? This then becomes the opportunity for us to pray and minister in the name of Jesus. So here's our first reflection question. I ask, like to ask you to reflect on how God has empowered you to do His work. For example, pray for the sick or giving to those in need or to provide an encouragement to a friend. And for the kids at home, discuss with your parents or Christian guardians how you can help others with God's strength. Second, we proclaim God's word with authority and power. God's word must be shared. Performing God's work gave Peter an opportunity to share God's word. Peter did not simply do God's work and let the results speak for themselves. No, for Peter and the early church, God's work is inseparably linked to God's word. God's work is interpreted and explained by God's word, specifically the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. There are three core aspects of how Peter proclaimed God's word. What God did in Christ, 
what God is now doing through Christ and how we can come to God through repentance and believing faith. What God did in Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Peter explained how God sent Jesus and how Jesus was put to death and raised to life. In verse 15, Peter said to the people in Jerusalem, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the core of God's word of salvation. In fact, one core element of the apostles' proclamation of the gospel that it is in Christ that resurrection has happened. The resurrection is God's power to reverse and restore all that has been stolen and destroyed by a sinful, fallen world. Next, Peter related the work of God that the people had just witnessed to what God is now doing in Christ. Acts chapter 3.16, By faith, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Here, Peter is explaining the miracle as God's present activity through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is not just a past event. It's not just a historical event. It is also God's present activity that is moving powerfully in the life of God's people and the world around them. It was not just a random healing. It was a direct result of Jesus' kingdom work in restoring wholeness and salvation in the lives of the people. Lastly, Peter tells the, Peter tells the people how they are to respond to God's word of salvation. In Acts 3, 19, Peter says, Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now remember, Jesus, uh, Peter just told the people, you were the ones who put Jesus to death. There's a high crime to betray and put the Son of God to death. But through repentance, Peter is saying, when you turn your life to God, your sins will be wiped out and times of refreshing will come from the Lord. In four, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter declared, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. People are not to be mere spectators of God's work. Neither are they to be passive hearers of God's word. They must come to repentance and believing faith in Jesus to gain this new life that God brings through Jesus. Repentance is not merely being sorry for our sins. It is a turning of a whole life to God through believing faith in Jesus Christ. It is to abandon the old life and embrace the new life that only Jesus can give. These core elements of God's gospel word must be inseparably linked to God's work. As the church engages with society at large, 
whether feeding the poor, praying for the sick, supporting school ministry, God's work done by faith should also eventually lead to God's word shared in faith. People we minister to and pray for are not, are not just to be mere recipients of aid or help. They are also to be called to actively respond to the word of the gospel. Now, how we actually do that can differ from context to context, but the gospel message must not be absent from the work of the church. Some of us here might say, well, you know, I'm not good with speaking. I, I don't have a persuasive personality or I'm too shy to share God's word. Well, if you're not a professional speaker, then you're actually in good company. Uh, the Apostle Paul in his day was judged to be less than spectacular by his own church members in Corinth in comparison with the Polish philosophers and public speakers of his day. But this is what Paul says in response in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. What Paul likely means here is that the Holy Spirit took his weak sharing of the gospel to convict and transform lives. In fact, some scholars may even say that Peter, uh, Paul uh, probably had some physical embarrassment that caused him some social embarrassment and the, the people, the, the church members in, in Corinth weren't sure whether such a weak leader who had weak speech and weak appearance could actually be someone who um, is, is authoritative on the word of, of God. And yeah, Well, this is uh, Paul's response. That is by the demonstration of the Spirit's power. That it is the Spirit and not Paul who created believing faith in the hearts of those who heard the gospel. And this is what we do as well. We share the gospel not with the high confidence of our own abilities, but with humble dependence on the authority and power that Christ gives us through the Spirit to share with conviction about what Jesus means to us. Very often, our starting point would be our own personal testimony of how God has worked in our life. It could be on how you came to know the Lord, to know Jesus as Lord, or how God brought you through a time of crisis or difficulty. Sharing our personal testimonies is something that we can all learn to do and prepare for. We share these personal encounters with God in a way that is meaningful and relevant to how we are engaging with our friends at school or our colleagues at work or those whom God sends us to minister to. Now, if you tie in with the first point we saw earlier, when we minister and pray for others in the name of Jesus, we can also share personal testimonies of, God, of how God has worked in our own lives. Personal testimonies are an important starting point because you are witnessing to others about God, how God has been real in your own life situation. Our personal testimonies can then help lead others to understand what God did in Christ 
and what God is now doing in our lives through Christ and eventually lead to a personal invitation to repentance and faith. Or perhaps we could include an invitation to join the next Alpha session in the church or in the workplace. Again, there are many possibilities in how we can share the gospel and personal testimonies, but let's do this in humble dependence on the authority and power that the Lord gives us to share His word of salvation. Um, we, we have to realize that when we share the gospel, we have to overcome our fear of being rejected, right? I mean, rejection is going to be high. But we have to overcome that because we are not sharing on our own authority. We are representing Christ. The rejection is not on us. It is actually on Christ. We trust in how God will move and convict the hearts of the people. For a second reflection question, what is the most impactful testimony you can share with others on how you have experienced God's salvation, love, or healing? And for the kids, why is it important to share with others about what Jesus has done for you? Third, persevere in God's way with authority and power. God's power is also for us to persevere under persecution. When the early church in Acts lived with authority and power, they quickly encountered opposition from the religious authorities in Jerusalem. At the start of uh, um, Acts chapter 4, we read that the priest and captain of the guard, of the, the captain of the temple guard, 
and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Peter and John had caused a stir amongst the people, and the religious authorities felt threatened by the emerging growth of the followers of Jesus, whom the authorities thought they were as good as gone since the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucifixion of Jesus, sorry. But now they probably, the religious authorities probably had some inkling of what happened at Pentecost, and this latest miracle healing further alarmed them that something unexpected was happening through the community of believers. So the authorities demanded of Peter and John in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, by what a power or what name did you do this? In other words, they were asking on whose authority and through whose power did Peter and John manage to perform this miracle. The authorities had reason for their unease. For one thing, the religious authorities in Jerusalem conspired to put Jesus to death. They claimed that Jesus was a dangerous agitator and false prophet. But now the apostles are preaching that Jesus was alive and that claim was continually being validated by miraculous signs and wonders that were hard to dismiss. The authorities' actions and standing were being quickly discredited by the authority and power shown by the early church. And so these religious authorities needed to reassert their power and try to suppress this resurgent group of disciples. Now, in the Gospels earlier that we read in Mark, Matthew, Luke, Jesus already warned his disciples that they will be brought up before authorities and to be questioned about their faith and loyalty to Christ. But Jesus assured them that the Holy Spirit will teach them what to say. And we see a direct fulfillment here in chapter 4, verse 8, where we read that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he answered them, the authorities. When we do God's work and when we proclaim God's word, we will be challenged on the basis of our authority and power of what we are doing. That's essentially the challenge to the gospel. In verse 10, Peter answers directly that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter is saying that all that they did, they did with the authority and power that comes by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Here then is the clash between powers and authorities that oppose the gospel and the authority and power granted to, this, to the disciples to perform God's works and to proclaim God's word. In desperation, the religious authorities warned and threatened Peter and John not to preach and share the gospel in Jesus' name. But in chapter 4, verse 19 to 20, Peter and John replied, What is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. When we face persecution and opposition, 
The bottom line is, it comes to this, whether we obey God in faith or we yield to human powers to save ourselves. But for Peter and John, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the experience they have had in seeing God at work meant that they could not keep silent. They cannot suppress the explosive way in which God's kingdom was growing in their midst. They cannot help but be witnesses to what God has led them to experience, to what they have seen and heard. The authority and power that God gives us is not only to perform God's work and proclaim His word, it is also to speak in defense of the faith and to persevere in God's way when faced with opposition and persecution. To a large extent, we are defined by our choices. How we choose to act, to whom we give our allegiance to, in what we have invested our time and efforts. These choices define who we are. If God were to view, view our choices as individuals and as a local church, what would he find? What would our choices tell about us as disciples and the church? Have we chosen the easy way out or persisted in the face of opposition and hardship and disappointments? Did we make the hard choices to remain faithful to Christ? In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus asks, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke chapter 18, it's about praying for God's deliverance, justice in the face of oppression and injustice. Many of us are praying for this for our nation. But then Jesus says that God will indeed answer the cry of his people. But when he comes, Jesus comes, will he find faith? Will he find faithfulness? In the Experiencing God workbook, Henry Blackaby says this, the previous level of your walk with God will not be adequate for the new work God wants to do through you. There are vast untapped mission fields in families, neighborhood communities, schools, workplaces, business, finance, hospitals, political sphere, refugee work, in the work of a certain nation. There are vast areas around us that Jesus claims as part of his kingdom, but remains unreached because the church is not moving in authority and power by faith in the name of Jesus. If we are still depending on our previous level of faith experience with God, we are not going to move in full obedience to where God wants us to be. But if we allow God to take every part of our lives to use for His glory, if we make the hard choice of giving God our time, talents, resources, without holding back, then we will live with a greater measure of authority and power under Christ to perform the work, His work, to proclaim His word, to persevere in God's way. 
I'll, I'll leave the third uh, reflection question for your own family devotion, but I'd like to just invite us for a time of prayer as we commit ourselves afresh uh, to the Lord. I'd like to pray for us to come to the Lord in repentance. There is no partial lordship of Jesus. There's only the lordship of Jesus. There's no partial obedience to God, right? There's, there's only obedience. Total and complete to the Lord. But there is life, complete forgiveness, and joy ending, joy unending with the Lord. Salvation is found in no other name except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us may have been coming to church for a long time, but maybe we have not fully given ourselves to the Lord in full obedience. And we'd like to pray together. We'd like to also pray to commit ourselves as the church to God's work to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord where God has placed us or where God has sent us to. There is no partial work of the Lord. There's just the work of the Lord. We are called to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. So we need to pray with bonus that we will want to do the works that Jesus did and even in greater measure because of the outpouring of God's Spirit on us. If we pray this prayer, I think we can trust that God will answer if we yield to Him. And so, Lord, in Your presence right now, we bring ourselves to You. We pray, Holy Spirit, teach us repentance. Teach us the full surrender of obedience to the Lord. Father, in those of us here who are opening our hearts to you, we pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring us to new life in Christ Jesus. Father, as individuals and as a church today, we want to pray with trembling but also with boldness to do the works that Jesus did, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Give us the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do the work that you have given us to do. We want to pray this day for those who need the saving healing touch of the Lord. In whatever circumstance, the Lord may be moving you to pray for someone. It could be a family member, your friend, your small group member, to pray with the authority and power of Christ. And so I'd like to invite you to pray for that person right now. Not with your own strength or understanding, but with the authority and power that Christ gives to you. Lord, help us 
in our weakness and fear. But Lord, will you do a mighty work in the lives that we are committing to you right now? We pray, Lord, for salvation in the name of Jesus. We pray for deliverance in the name of Jesus. We pray, Lord, for healing in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.